Good morning. Isn't it wonderful to be together? You all having fun? Hope you're eating enough. If not, there's more food coming. I'm very thankful for the wonderfully refreshing pastoral teachings that we've heard over uh, yesterday that's been there to refresh us and strengthen us for the task ahead. I just want to say that this morning I'm going to take the pastoral gloves off a little bit, and um, some others will put them back on later, but I'm going to if, put it this way, if you are of a sensitive disposition, you may want to leave the room right now. <laughs> About 30 years ago, I sat in a living room and listened to an older man, uh, he passed away last year actually, and um, he was quite a rough character. He wasn't very polite. He told inappropriate jokes, um, some of them quite rude at inappropriate moments. But he sat in that living room and he told me something. He said, imagine the whole population of Africa. And there are thousands and thousands of churches in Africa. He says, imagine that population. Now he says, think of in India, there's the Ganges River that flows right through India. And the whole population of Africa fits into that Ganges River. In other words, the population of the Ganges River Valley is the same as the population of the whole of Africa. And the whole of Africa has thousands and thousands of churches. And in this Ganges River, in which there were, there's the same population as the whole of Africa, there was one church preaching the gospel. How many million people is that? And that conversation lit a fire in me that I want, to, I want to pass on a little bit of that fire this morning. Because what God has called us to do is to reach the unreached. I want to give us a bit of the biblical mandate. And can I say I'm going to preach the whole Bible in about 30 seconds. <laughs> and don't try and take notes. It's going to be useless. Just, just actually just receive what God's saying this morning. I'm going to look at how we're doing. I'm going to look at how we can change the things that we're doing so that we can become more effective. And I'm going to just start the conversation, and some of you will probably disagree with some of the things I say, and that's okay because I just want to start the conversation. And there'll be other things that, as I talk, you'll be thinking of that, we could, that can, you'll say, oh, this will also be helpful. And that's good, too. I want to start the conversation so that we can start thinking and talking better about this thing of reaching the unreached. We need to change things. We need to change some of our thinking. Right in the beginning, when God created man and, and he created Adam and Eve and he gave them a job and he says, multiply and fill the earth. And that's the mandate that has been given to us, is to multiply and fill the earth with the knowledge of Jesus. And then God spoke to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make, your, make you great, and I'm going to make your name great, so that you can be a blessing to all nations. All people groups will be blessed through you. He says, the reason I'm blessing you is so that all people groups can be blessed through you. And he repeated that promise three times to Abraham. And you know, in Hebrew thinking, in Hebrew biblical thinking, when something is said three times, it is an extremely, extremely important thing. So this, is, this was God's plan for the people of Israel. I'm going to bless you people of Israel with my word, with my power, with my love, so that you can be a blessing to all nations. 
The blessing was never meant to be for the Israelites. The blessing was for the Israelites to give to the other nations around them. And you see the, 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 the story of the Old Testament, the story of the Bible is how God used the people of Israel to bless other nations. He sent Joseph to Egypt, and Egypt would have disappeared off the planet if Joseph hadn't gotten there and saved that nation. He sent Jonah to an enemy city, to Nineveh, to preach the gospel in Nineveh, and the whole city turned to God. He sent Daniel to, to Babylon. And in the time that Daniel was in Babylon, it could have been 50 or 60 years, he, he sat under the authority of five different kings. One king didn't believe in God. Two kings gave their lives to God and said, we believe in the king, the king of heavens. Two kings didn't make such strong commitments, but they gave themselves up to, be, to serve the king of heaven. And they were used by God. So out of Daniel's life, four, four out of five kings became followers and servants of God. Isn't that amazing? And so, so we see the whole, we, we see Solomon as well. Uh, Solomon had the, the he, he had the greatest, he took the Israel, people of Israel into the greatest economic wealth of the nation of, that had ever existed. And people from all nations were coming to him to see the glory of God. And people, so that we have knowledge of, of the, the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of God going back to Yemen with the Queen of Sheba because of what she saw. In, in Solomon's life. So people, all, it says that all nations, all the nations came to see the glory of God in Israel. In other words, Israel was used to be a blessing to all nations. And then we see how the prophets prophesied. And they say one of the reasons, he says, your call, your mandate is to be a blessing to all nations. He says, why aren't you doing it? And by the time Jesus came along, the people of Israel were so focused on taking the blessings for themselves that's what Pharisee, Pharisaism was born out of. And when Jesus, there was 400 years when they said, the, the blessing of God, it's ours. We don't share it with anybody. And so when we as churches stop taking the gospel out to the people who haven't heard the gospel, we stand in danger of running into Pharisaism in our churches. And that's such a danger. And so Jesus came along. And, and you know, sometimes when you... When you're reading the Bible, and, and it depends on what God's got burning on your heart, sometimes you read the Bible, and every single page you read grace in the Bible. And every single page you read love in the Bible. When Eddie reads the Bible, every single page he sees end times in the Bible. <laughs> Sorry, Eddie, I'm just being naughty here. But when I read the Bible, I just see nations, and Jesus, Jesus was ministering to the nations. He sent out 12 disciples. Why did he send out 12? Because there were 12 um, nations, the 12 tribes of Israel. Later on, he sent out 70 disciples. Why 70 disciples? Well, you've got to go back to Genesis 10. The, you've got Noah, he came out of the ark, and he, his sons got married, or they had wives and they had children, and then all his descendants became the nations, the known nations of the world, of the Hebrew world, and there are 70. Genesis chapter 10 is the, the it's called the table of nations, and there are 70 nations that are listed there. And so Jesus very purposefully sent out 70 disciples saying, we're reaching the 12 tribes of Israel, but we're also reaching all the known nations of the world. And every nation on the planet has descended from those 70 nations. That's how the biblical thinking, that's how the Hebrew thinking works. And so then we know that Jesus said in Matthew 28, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. He said in Mark 16, go into all the world, not just the best parts of the world, not, nice, not just the nice, warm, comfortable parts of the world, not just the parts of the world where they serve nice croissants, 
but go into all the world. In Acts chapter 1, he says, go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outer ends of the world. He didn't say Jerusalem, then Samaria, then so Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the outer ends of the world. He said, and, 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 at the same time, all of them. In John 15, 16, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you to go. I chose you to go, to go and bear fruit. I chose you to go. You didn't choose me. I chose you to go. And then we have in Revelations chapter 7, where it gives us this wonderful picture of, of heaven, what worship in heaven is going to be like, what worship in heaven is like right now, but what it's going to be like with people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every town, every village, worshiping the king, standing there with ro in robes of white, washed by the blood of the lamb, worshiping the king. And that's the picture, that's the thing we're looking forward to, that's the anticipation that we have, that every single people group, every single ethnic group, every single tribe, every tongue is going to be there in heaven. And Jesus has given us the mandate to get those people in there. He's not going to do it for us. He has given us the mandate to do it. He says, I chose you to go and do that task. And that's the call that he has on our life. And we, we look at the life of Paul, and, and Paul went out and, and um, he said, firstly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says, the signs of the marks of an apostle, the signs of the apostle are signs and wonders. In my life, in my experience, when I am walking in an apostolic role, in other words, when I'm going out to unreached nations, that's where I see signs and wonders. That's where I get to cast out demons and heal the sick. And any time anytime I'm going out there and any time my heart is out there, I have to tell you that every single time we see miracles happen. Why? Because that is, that is the mark of apostleship, that when we go out to the nations, signs and wonders will follow us. If you're not going, there's nothing to follow. Why would signs and wonders follow you? You have to be going in order to see the signs and wonders. And yes, you can bring the signs and wonders back. And I do have an anticipation that every Sunday in church we should be seeing salvations and healings and all of that. But my experience is that I see that opening up and I'm seeing it flying when, when I'm out there, when I'm out in the unreached people groups. But more than that, he said in Romans chapter 15, he says, my heart, he says, my ambition is to preach where the name of Christ is not known. With, I want to preach to the people who have never, ever heard the name of Christ. And when I heard that, when I, the first time I read that scripture, when I heard that scripture being preached, it became my life scripture. My ambition is to take the gospel of Christ to those who have never, ever heard. So when God spoke to us about going to Mongolia ooh, 27, 28 years ago, a long time ago, 29, 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> yeah, Claire's saying add a few, Yeah. <laughs> We said, God, we don't, we don't really mind where we go, but we want to go where nobody else wants to go. And at that time in South Africa, if the, the, there was a thing amongst the pastors in the church. If you were a misbehaving Christian, they would say, be careful or we'll send you to outer Mongolia. And in the South African context, in South African thinking, people thought Mongolia, outer Mongolia was a punishment post. And so we said, God, we will even go to outer Mongolia. And God said, well, that's where I want you to go. So we said, okay, Lord. And we said, second thing, Lord, we want to go where there's no McDonald's. 
Because we don't want our children to grow up in McDonald's. And God said, don't worry, there's no McDonald's in Mongolia. And still to this day, there's no McDonald's there. But Paul said, my ambition, what an ambition to have. My ambition is to preach the gospel where the name of Christ has never been heard. Now, can I say that there's the mark of an apostle, which is signs and wonders. There's the heart of the apostle, which is taking the gospel to those who have never, ever heard the gospel. And I want to differentiate a little bit, because so so you hear where, where I'm coming from. Eddie said yesterday, there are so many heroes sitting in this room, people who've gone out to different cities, different countries, and planted churches in, in big cities. And who knows, we need a, city, a church in Munich, we need a church in Paris, we need a church in Amsterdam, we need a church in Malta, we need churches in all these big cities. But you know what, in every one of these big cities, here in Munich, there's another 30 churches. And so if we're not here people will still have an opportunity to hear the gospel. It's a good thing because that people do go because there are lots of people who haven't heard the gospel and we need to re-evangelize the evangelized. I have no problem with that. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to do. It's a good work to do. We need to get the gospel out there even if it is re-evangelizing the re-evangelizing the evangelized. I have no problem with it. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It is a good thing. Yeah? It's also possible... If you like getting out, it's possible to go to parts of Africa, to places like Sri Lanka, to southern India, to the Philippines, to parts of Indonesia, and you can find groups of churches led by some kind of apostolic figure, perhaps, groups of 40, 60, a couple of hundred churches who are hungry for the Word. They've got no foundation. They've got no teaching. Um, They've planted these churches. Some of them have gone out and planted churches just for the book of John. And they've planted multiple churches. And these people need foundations and they need teaching. And it's a good thing to go out to those. Eddie goes regularly to India. And there's a group there. And, 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 and there's a whole bunch of churches. And these people are so needy. But they've heard the gospel already. They've got churches. They're planting churches. And, and the work is going on. And very often these groups will have an orphanage or a kindergarten or something attached, so they'll take your time, your energy, and your money to build their work. And again, hear my heart, it's not wrong to do that kind of thing. There's good work happening in all of that. But that's not really my heart this morning. My heart is for the people who have never, ever heard the gospel of Jesus and who never, ever have the opportunity to hear the gospel. In our big cities in Europe... Through different ways, there are opportunities to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ every 24 hours, on average. In Paris, the gospel, on average, is presented every 24 hours. If you want to find out about Jesus, there's somebody you can ask. There's a presentation you can go to, and you can hear the gospel. It's a wonderful thing. In Afghanistan, in North Korea, in Senegal, in Turkmenistan, in in a few of these other stands they get to an opportunity to hear the gospel every 30 years on average. Can we live with that? And that's where my heart is, to say, let's reach those people. It's good to go into our cities and preach the gospel to people who already have an opportunity. We've got to bring the harvest in. I have no problem with that. It's good 
to go out to where, where, where people are planting churches and let's help these people. It's good to do that. But there's more out there. There are people out there who haven't heard yet. And let's look at some of the statistics. We've got 7.8 billion people in the world. 3.3 billion people have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. That's 42% of our world's population haven't heard the, word of Jesus, the name of Jesus. This year, 70 million people are going to die without ever having heard the name of Jesus. There are 10,000, just over 10,000 people groups. You may have heard the number 17,000. Um, there's different ways of counting. For example, the Kurds, the Kurdish people group are in Iraq and Turkey and Iran, I think, or Syria. So some people count that as three people groups, some count that as one people group. The Shugni people are in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and in uh, Tajikistan. You could count that as three people groups or you could count that as one people group. I'm counting the lower number. So we've got 10,000-something people groups. 4,500 of them have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, to, t to tell you, to put this in a different perspective, um, you've, very many of you have heard that many Muslims, many people in the Muslim world are getting revelations of Jesus. They're having meetings with Jesus. They're dream, having dreams about Jesus. Um, when we were living in Dresden a few years ago, we had an opportunity to work with many refugees out of Iran and Afghanistan. And probably 50% of those people came to our church and came to meet with us simply because they had had a revelation of Jesus and they wanted to find out more. They had questions. We had one man, Jesus came and sat on his bed for three nights in a row and he shared, shared his life with him. And he said, I've got to get to know this man, Jesus. And he came and he became a faithful member of the church. Other people were just walking in the forest and they got some kind of revelation, some kind of understanding, I need to follow Jesus. Some pe one guy heard a church bell and he said, oh, that's the Jesus, just the, that's the Jesus people. I need, to, I need to go and find out who this Jesus is. They had an encounter with Jesus. They found a church and they came and asked, who is Jesus? In these countries, I'm talking about if those people get a revelation of Jesus, within a million people, they have no one to ask. There have been cases of missionaries going into these nations and they say, and, and they meet somebody and say, hey, I believe in Jesus. And, the guy, and they meet a person and the guy says, hey, I believe in Jesus. I know Jesus. I met Jesus. And I thought I was the only one. There are people like that are out there that have met Jesus and need to know more about Jesus and need to get an opportunity to find this word. And they're not hearing because, honestly, we're not going. 86% of these unreached people groups are in the 1040 window. There are now about 85 countries, or 86 countries, that are completely closed to the gospel, where uh, you won't necessarily get into physical danger for preaching there, but you will certainly get thrown out of the country, and the people that listen to you may get into physical danger. But there are 68 nations... In the 1040 window, there's 3,800 unreached people groups, something like that, in the 1040 window. Just to give you an idea, a little bit more of an idea how, how we're doing, you've always got to go where the money goes. Look where the money goes. Did you know that $50 billion a year are embezzled from churches in America? $50 billion. $8 billion are spent on going to conferences and equips. <laughs> $2 billion 
are given to evangelism, of which $2 billion are given to evangelism. Of every dollar, one cent goes to the unreached. We have to look where the money is going. The money is not going to the unreached, and that's why people are not going to the unreached. And I started asking around and amongst our NCMI circles, who's going to the unreached? Is there anyone going to the unreached? I found one couple in our whole NCMI family. There's one couple who are in connection with unreached people. Friends, we have to do better. We have a call. We have a mandate. We have to do better. We have to think differently. Why aren't we going? One, it's very dangerous. Most of these nations that you go into, a Kalashnikov rifle is a standard accessory at a wedding. And you have to get used to seeing Kalashnikov rifles all over the place. In many of these places, it's very dangerous to live. And living in Mongolia, which is a relatively safe and a relatively comfortable country compared to some of the other places, we had some very dangerous moments. There were two occasions where I felt, okay, this is probably my last day on this earth. One is I'd been drive, ministering in a city in the very far east of, of Mongolia, and we were driving back home, and um, we, we'd been gone about, out of the city for about four hours, and there was this huge clunk in the front, and the, the motor basically just fell apart. And it was about sunset, it was minus 35 degrees, and we were stuck. And you can't call the AA or the Adeotse. You can't call somebody and say, please come pick me up. At minus 35, out on the plains of Mongolia, you, if you're stuck, you're stuck. And you just pray and you just have to say, God, deliver us. So it, we waited for about four hours. It was good and dark. And eventually another little Russian jeep came along and he had a trailer. And he said, in Mongolia, you don't leave somebody out on the plains at minus 35. So he hooked us up with a three-meter tow rope. So it was a Russian jeep with a trailer with a three-meter tow rope and us sitting in, the, in, in our little Russian jeep. And all the other guys were sitting in, they'd put their sleeping bags, they'd put all their clothes on, and they were sitting in their sleeping bags. I was driving, so I couldn't put my sleeping bag on. I had the guy next to me scratching a little hole in the ice, in, in the ice on the windscreen so that I could see outside, so just so I could see the brake lights of the vehicle in front of me. And we drove like that for four hours. By the time we got into the city, I was, my core temperature had sunk so much, one of the guys told me I was probably within a, one or two hours of going into a hypothermic coma. And that was a moment when I thought, pooh, that was a little close. <laughs> But it's dangerous in those places. You look at some of the roads in Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's some crazy roads that I desperately want to drive on. My, my ambition is to drive along the Khyber Pass. Because it's so crazy dangerous. I want to be there. But yes, it's dangerous. And it, also, if you get sick in those nations, what do you do? It's, more, it's safer to just go home and lie on your bed than it is to go to some of the doctors there. <laughs> and so, yeah, medical attention is a, a disaster in many of these countries. So it's really dangerous to go there. The next thing about these countries is it's really difficult to live there. Most countries now have internet. It's amazing the places that have internet. Even the Taliban connected with internet and they all WhatsApp each other and Telegram each other. But they have nothing else. No running water, no fridges, no electricity, nothing. 
you're going out there into these places and you're camping. And you've got to learn how to cook on a little gas stove if you can get gas. You've got to learn how to make a fire. If your car breaks down, you, you're the only one who can fix it. I grew up in Zimbabwe and I grew up on a cattle ranch and so I knew how to fix old Series 1 Land Rovers. And so by the time I got to Mongolia, I, th I said, thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity that I had growing up to learn how to fix an, an, an old Jeep. Because we had this Russian Jeep and everywhere we went and all the time we went, we always had to fix it every time. Once we went on a 1,200-kilometer journey, and the brakes kept on failing, and I'd have to stop every two hours and completely redo the whole brake system. By the third time, I got tired of that, and I just disconnected the brakes, and we drove home without brakes. <laughs> and it's quite easy, because Mongolia is quite a hilly country, and so if you want to stop, you just find a hill and you drive up it, and you get to stop at some point. <laughs> but it's difficult, and dealing with stuff at minus 35, the coldest I've been to is minus 50, with an outside toilets. Can I say, <laughs> going to the toilet at minus 50, you do what you need to do really quickly. <laughs> it's also really expensive to get to these nations. It's really expensive to fly there. When you get there as a foreigner, you pay 10 times what everybody else pays. It's really, really expensive. And the, the World Council for Evangelism says that on average, the cost of a convert in one of these unreached nations is $350,000. That includes all the effort and time and study that goes into translating the Bibles. It includes all the training of the people who get sent there. It includes all the costs of living there and providing support for somebody living there. So it's expensive to get to these nations. But you know what? God is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. He can do it. He can provide the finances that we need if we are willing to be channels to be of finances to reach these people. But there's this incredible, vast 3.2 billion people who do not today have the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. And if they hear the name of Jesus, they've got nobody that can ask about it. Can you live with that? I can't. And I've come to the realization in my mid-50s that we're doing a terrible job at reaching the unreached. We really are. And I know I'm supposed to be positive and upbuilding and encouraging and all that sort of thing. Reality is we're doing a terrible job at reaching the unreached. We're just not doing it. We're going from equip to equip to equip to equip, and we're teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. Good things, good teaching, encouraging words, lots of encouraging, upbuilding prophecy. And who knows, after this whole pandemic crisis, we needed some encouragement. But in terms of the mandate that Jesus has given us to reach the unreached, we're just not doing it. I've also come to a realization my whole Christian life, I've lived with the eager anticipation that one day I'm going to see Jesus come back. That I'm going to be alive and Jesus is going to come back. And all the things that are written in the Bible, we're going to see him come on the clouds and it's going to be so exciting. Matthew chapter 24 says, all ethnos, all people groups will be reached with the gospel and then I will return. And I look 4,000 something, 4,500 unreached people groups, and we're not reaching them. 
I've realized I'm probably not going to see Jesus come back in my lifetime. And that makes me sad, to be honest. And I think what we need to be doing to do is be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Not to say that what we, anything we're doing is bad. We, we're doing, and I, like Eddie said, just proud of all the guys that are doing all the things in all the cities and just wonderful, wonderful things. But there's some big elephant in the room and we're not even nibbling at the elephant. In reality, there's some work going on. So proud of John and Sala who've gone, to, gone out to Kyrgyzstan and, and they're in, in East Kyrgyzstan and they're reaching the Kyrgyz people who are reached, but they're also reaching the Kalmuk people who are unreached, and they're reaching the Dongan people who are unreached. So proud of what they're doing. And they've gone there, and they've found a home, and, they, and it's just difficult for some, in some things, but they, you know what? They, they've got seven. God's given, they, they've just started, and God's given them seven broken, hurting, offended, uh, crippled people. And John and Sal are just loving them, and they're going out into the village and taking food to poor people, and just wonderful, but they're reaching, they're reaching three people groups. Isn't that exciting? I mean, that's really amazing. But for us to get involved in them, in, in doing this, and for us to get involved in reaching people groups, we need to change our thinking. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I'm so glad for that word that Vanessa brought, that we need to be transformed. Einstein said this. He said, doing, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's the definition of insanity. And I, I'm going to say this sensitively. I mean, I'm not sensitive, so I'll just say it. <laughs> Mark of an apostle, signs and wonders. The heart of, the apostle, uh, of an apostle is to say, my ambition is to preach the name of Jesus where it's never been preached. If you don't have those two things, can I say, be very careful, prayerfully consider whether you need to have the word apostle on your website, apostolic on your website. I love these equips. I love it when we get together and we worship Jesus together. But the predominant thing we do here in these equips is teaching. And I'll come to talk a bit more about equips later. But if we keep on doing this, if we keep on doing these good, wonderful things, but don't change anything, we cannot expect to then start reaching the unreached. We've got to change something in order to reach the unreached. Do you agree with me? And I don't know what all the answers are yet, but let's talk about some of them. One of them, I think one of the important things is that we need to think about is how do we present the gospel? In the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell, they, they, in, in Genesis chapter 3, they ate the apple or ate the fruit or whatever it was, and they fell. There were three things that they experienced. Number one, they felt guilty because they were... They had done something wrong, they disobeyed God, and they were guilty and they deserved punishment. They felt that. Number two, they felt ashamed because they said they saw their, their nakedness for the first time. Number three, they felt fear. They felt fear of God, so they went and hid themselves. And God came into the garden and he addressed all three of those things. He said, you're guilty, I'm going to provide a means that the serpent will be killed, but you will be delivered. He said, you're ashamed, and he covered their nakedness. He covered their shame. He addressed their shame. And he said, you're scared of me. He says, come to me. Come to me and overcome your fear. So he addressed all of those three things. 
When we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, those three things need to be in our presentation. We need to deal with sin and forgiveness. We need to deal with shame, and we need to deal with fear. But your starting point in different contexts is very often very different. We in the Western world live in a guilt-based society. In other words, we know that when we sin, when we do something wrong, we deserve punishment, and we accept that, yes, you have to go to jail or whatever it is, you have to pay a fine um, because you've done something wrong and you get punishment for that. And we know that and we understand that. We grow, we've grown up with this guilt mentality, guilt and forgiveness mentality, and we know how to say, I'm sorry, and we know how to say, I forgive you. That's, our, that's the concept, that's the, the worldview that we've grown up in. But if you go to any of the Muslim nations and you try and tell them that they're guilty of sin, that they need to repent of their sin and they need to receive forgiveness of their sin, they'll walk away from you. Why? Because Muhammad, as a person, lived under the spirit of rejection. He was rejected by his grandparents, by his parents. He was rejected by his uncles. He was rejected by his mother. He was rejected by the Christians around him. He was rejected by the Jews. He was rejected by everything. All of Muhammad's teachings and all of his responses came out of a spirit of rejection. He was a desperately hurt and broken man. And he lived with a lot of shame. And so the Muslims live in this shame-based culture. So if a young man hears about Jesus and wants to come to Jesus... The first question, he, he doesn't, he, you try and tell him you need to repent of your sins. He says, I don't feel like I'm a sinner. But he says, if I follow Jesus, what's my mother going to say and what are the neighbors going to say? And they are so ashamed of what the neighbors are going to say that it becomes a major hindrance for them for the gospel because of their sense of shame. But they don't f struggle with guilt. They also have a lot of fear. And so if you come and talk about guilt and sin and forgiveness, they're just, not, they're just going to walk away from you. You've got to come and say, how does God deal with your shame? And that's the starting point of your gospel. You, you teach the other things later on, but your starting point is to address their shame. In Turkey at the moment, there are about 8,500 eight missionaries. There are about 4,000 Turkish believers. Anytime one person in Turkey, a Turkish person, puts his hand up and says, I'm going to follow Jesus, three missionaries jump on him, take photographs of him, put him in their newsletter, and send it out to raise money. We in the Western world made a huge mistake in Turkey about 20 years ago. What we did is a lot of very well-meaning Western Christians went from town to town in Turkey, stood up in the public square and said, we ask for forgiveness for the Crusades. Well-meaning, and it's true, Chief. The Crusades were terrible, and what they did to the Turks was absolutely mind-blowingly awful. And we need to get forgiveness for that. But when you stand up in a Turkish public square and you say, forgive us, we were guilty for, uh, for, the, for the Crusades, for a Turkish person, this is excruciatingly embarrassing. They feel, oh, oh, we've got to keep away from these crazy people. And they will not listen to your message about Jesus because they're not a guilt. They don't have a worldview of guilt and forgiveness. We in the Western world have a worldview of guilt and forgiveness. Can I, say, can, I, can I say people above the age of 25 have a worldview of guilt and forgiveness? I believe under the age of 25 we're moving to a shame culture. 
In the Hindu world, in the Buddhist world, when you go there, in Mongolian language, there isn't even a word for sin. And so you can't go to them and say you're a bunch of sinners that need forgiveness. They're not interested. They don't know what sin is. But they, they do know every demon on every mountain, and they can paint pictures of that demon, and they know his name, and they know exactly what he does. Outside of Ulaanbaatar, the capital city of Mongolia, there's four hills. One hill has a, a, a demon with a yellow face. Well, 70% of the people in Mongolia are f infected with hepatitis. One of the symptoms is a yellow face. Um, and the, so every demon, they know the names of the demons, they know the, the influence of the demons, they know the, who, and what they do, and they know where they are. And if you're going to go and present the gospel in Mongolia, the biggest thing you've got to do is show that your God is more powerful than their God or than their demons. And you take away that fear of the demons, and then they say, okay, now let's find out more about Jesus. But you've got to deal with the fear first. When we first planted a church in Ulaanbaatar, we, we started in a place, we didn't know it, but we bought a little piece of property, somebody gave us money, and we got some containers, and we built a little church together, and we, later on we found out that the name of this place was Darkness in Mongolian, and they said it was the most violent district in the whole city, and we said, yes, we've going to plant a light in the darkest part of the city. We were so excited when we found that out. The presence of the church there changed the nature of that district. And people came to the church, they said, because our district is changing in so many ways and we think you're responsible. Because they saw that the power of the demonic, the demonic powers in Mongolia were broken by the power of the gospel. And we did a lot of casting out of demons, and we did a lot of binding things and breaking things. And we saw, you can ask our, our children, our children grew up seeing signs and wonders of things being broken, of people being set free when they realized they didn't have to live under the fear of these demons because Jesus was much greater than the demons. When they got to that point of seeing that Jesus is more powerful than the demons. Then we could talk about guilt and forgiveness and the cross and the blood and, and all that sort of thing. We, could, we got to that point. But our starting point was fear and dealing with fear. And so these three things are all part of the gospel. They're part of the whole gospel passage. We have to think about when we go and preach the gospel, what are we preaching and how do we approach these people? Are we, is our starting point guilt? Is our starting point shame? Is our starting point fear? That's one of the changes we've got to... Get into our thinking. Is that okay? Another thing we need to think about is how we think about finances. And can I say that in some of our circles, um, we haven't just thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We've thrown out the baby, the bathwater, the bath, the plumbing, the tiles, the windows, everything. And I get it because we lived in Mongolia for 14 years and we were we what was called a receiving nation where we received missionaries. Germany is a sending nation because Germany typically sends missionaries. We were a receiving nation. We saw lots and lots of missionaries. The missionaries tended to live in one area. We lived right on the other end of the city, as far away from the missionaries as we could get. If you have horror stories about missionaries, I can, I've got, I can beat you 20 to 1. Horror stories of people who, take, who get tons of finances. I mean extravagant finances, and they do absolutely nothing at the best, and the worst, they cause trouble. And we've seen some horrible abuses of the name of Jesus. We've seen horrible abuses of the gospel by 
missionaries from missionary organizations just doing dumb stuff, being unaccountable. So I get that we don't want to pour money into the black hole of the missionary movement. Typical missionary organization is a person who is appointed as a missionary. He goes out for three or four years. He comes back for a year. In that year, he's supposed to go around with his begging bowl and raise enough money. Uh, in these missionary organizations, they get a one-week training course, how to write your, your newsletter to make it more effective in, in obtaining more money, how to build up your email list so that you can get more people who can possibly be donors. They get trained how to do that. And I get that that is why we have rejected doing financing like the mission, missionaries do. But what we've got to do is go back to the biblical pattern, as always. And in, in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, we see Jesus was supported by a group of wealthy women. One of them was the wife of Herod's assistant. And he was assisting Herod. She was sending his part of his salary to support Jesus. I think that's pretty cool. But Jesus didn't just drift around for three years living by faith. He had a group of people who chose to support him. If you look at Paul's, uh, Paul's life, it, we, we sometimes get very excited about Paul and his tent making. The thing is that Paul did tent making once. He was trying to reach a rebellious, idolatrous, crazy, mixed up city called Corinth. And they had all sorts of weird ideas about finance. And so he said, okay, because you guys are so nuts, I'm going to raise my own income. I don't want money from you guys. I'm going to raise my own income. And so he did the tent making. But it's the only time that it's recorded that he did his tent making thing. All of the other times, he got support from the churches. So the letter, the letter to the Philippians is basically a letter thanking the Philippians for the money they sent. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, I thank you for the gift, and you sent it with Titus, and thanks for sending the gift. And because you sent me this gift, all of your needs will be met according to God's riches and glory. That's the, the big picture of the book of Philippians. It's a thank you letter. Missionary letter, if you like. <laughs> and then he wrote to the Corinthians later on, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and he says, look what the Philippians did. Poor, poor, poor people but look how much money they sent me. That's in chapter 8. He says, he says, that's what they did. Why can't you do the same? Chapter 9, he gets a bit more scratchy. And he says, actually, you promised you would send me money. Your excuse was that you didn't trust the couriers because you thought that the couriers would steal the money. So I'm sending Titus and another guy. These guys are my sons. I absolutely trust them. I'm sending Titus to get the money that you promised. And he says, because if I have to come all the way to you to get the money that you promised, you're going to get a hard word from me. That's what he says there in chapter 9. And so he was, in his ministry was supported by churches around Asia. And churches willingly gave. They invested in Paul's strategy. And I think we as churches have a have a responsibility. If we are serious about reaching the unreached people, we need to find a strategy to invest our finances into reaching the unreached. My desire, my heart for our church is that we have 10% of our income that goes to purely to reaching the unreached. That's what I would like to do. The difficulty we have is finding where to send that money because nobody's going to the unreached. We could probably, in these nations, we could probably support at least one and possibly two couples to go and work in the unreached people groups as a church. 
Because we couldn't find a way to send our money to the unreached, we thought, okay, we've got to at least send our money to people working in a different nation. So we committed ourselves to, spend, to, to sending money to a particular nation, to a particular church, and a particular nation to support. And we said, okay, we're going to send 1,000 euros a month to this nation to bless that nation. And it was a risk for us. It was tight. We thought, yeah, can we actually do this? But you know what? We started giving, and our give, the giving in our church, without even hardly talking about the giving in our church, lifted up. And we got back more into the church than we were giving out. And isn't that exciting? Simply because we decided to send money to another nation. We saw the provision of God. It, it didn't hurt us. We thought it would hurt us. We thought we'd have to cut back. But it, we didn't have to cut back anything in the church at all. Because God provided. And it was just wonderful. And such an exciting journey. But our heart is this. 4,500 unreached people groups in this world. We want to invest 10% of our income in the church, not 10% of our profits, 10% of our income in the church into reaching unreached people groups. Is there anyone who will go? Is there anyone who will take our money and go to the unreached people groups? We as churches need to think of a strategy of how we can actively invest in the, in the unreached people groups. And I know there's things to do with, with entitlement and all those sort of things, and, and, but you've got to, we've got to work it out through relationships. And perhaps some, sometimes you'll, you'll give and it'll go wrong, and that's okay. God can live with that. We have the responsibility to be sowing into that and making it as an investment. You see, if somebody goes out to reach, for example, the Dongan people group, 400,000 people over Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and and parts of China. If somebody goes out there, my heart is, I don't want those, that family to ever worry for one moment about where finances are coming from. I don't want them to worry about whether they have health insurance or not. I want them to be free of that. Now you see, when Bridget and I went out, God spoke to us and said, Trust me completely for your finances and never ask anyone for a single cent. That was a direct word from God to us in our situation. And we went out in complete faith. And when people asked us, well, how are you going to live? We just laughed and said, that's God's problem, not ours. And he provided so generously for us that in some points it became quite embarrassing to share our testimony because sometimes we'd be in a meeting like this and we know that there's pastors who's struggling to get enough money just to pay their lights at the end of the month. And here we're living in abundance with the amount of money that God gave us and we never asked for a cent. People phoned us and said, hey, can we give to you? Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> we'll take it if you're throwing it in our direction, yeah? Um, and, but that was, that was how God spoke to us. And there are some people... And I think, Eddie, you were one as well, you and Teo also like that, just went out and, 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 and said, we're just going to trust God completely. But we as leaders don't need to impose that on people to say, go out and live by faith. If God speaks to them and says, go and live by faith, let them do that. But we as leaders don't need to impose that on them. But what we as leaders can do is say, you want to go to this unreached people group and you're going to commit four years to learning their language and you're going to live like them, you're going to live with them and you're going to learn to ride a horse and you're going to learn to eat disgusting food and you're going to learn all these amazing things. We want to make sure that you're, you never have to worry one single day about your finances. Amen. 
That is something we can do. Go for it. Thanks, Landry. I need some encouragement there. <laughs> Are we okay with that? Or am I, do you have any toes left for me to jump on? <laughs> yes. I was coming to that. Um, one of the things that we also have thrown out with the, the baby with the bathwater bath is we've said we'll never work with um, NGOs. We'll never work with parachurch organizations. And I can tell you there's some parachurch organizations who are doing some really damaging things in the kingdom, some really big ones that are doing damaging things. And I can't name them because this is going out on live stream. But there are some that are doing damaging things. But there are some organizations that have a particular skill set or a particular, yeah, a particular set of skills that, that we just don't have in our churches. One of them is Bible translation. For somebody to be a Bible translator, you've got to invest six to eight years in studying linguistics. You've got to go and live amongst a people group. You've got to learn their language. You've got to learn all the details of their language. Sometimes you have to create an alphabet. Then you've got to come back and you've got to Figure out how to translate the Bible. And I love Don Richardson's story where he went to Papua New Guinea and he said, there's that scripture, it says, where your sins shall be white as snow. And in Papua New Guinea, the only time they ever see snow is on Christmas cards that the missionaries get. <laughs> they have no idea what their snow is. So what do you do when you're translating the Bible? Because there's no language in their word for snow. So what do you compare? Do you stick to the, to the original word that says snow and tell Tell the people this is what, you mean, what it means, or do you compare white to something that they have that's white? And there's big arguments back and forth, but it's a very skilled thing. I would happily invest in those people because, you know, we were in two, the year 2000, we were in Mongolia when the, the full Bible, the full translation of the Bible was released to the nation in 2000. There's no greater privilege than to see a people group receive the Word of God in their own language. There is no greater celebration that you can be part of. The jubilation, these quiet, withdrawn, timid Mongolians, when, if you could see how they danced that night because they received the Word of God in their own language, it was a powerful thing. So yes, absolutely, I would invest in Bible translation. There are other organizations like Missionary Aviation Fellowship. And you know, sometimes missionaries get into trouble, sometimes they get injured out on the post, they need to be evacuated. Sometimes they can only get to where they're going because you can only fly there. We as churches can't fund airplanes and helicopters and things to get them out there. So I would invest in a parachurch organization that does those things to serve missionaries. Have no problem with it. There's an organization that we, we connected with that provides medical insurance for people, in missionaries. And for 2,500 euros a year, you can keep medical insurance, international medical insurance for a, a family of four for a whole year. It's peanuts. So these are specialist things that, yes, they support the work of God going into the, in, into the nations. And so we can, I'm happy that we invest in those. The last thing I want to say is about our, our, our thinking about conferences and about equips which is a bit ironic seeing as I'm hosting a quip, but... <laughs> in, in, Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20, Paul was heading on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he'd be taken to Rome and he'd be put in prison. 
And he went to Ephesus and he called the Ephesian elders together. And he, he called them together and he gave his last message to the Ephesians, Ephesian elders. And this is how we've got our model of equip, is that when an area has been reached, we call all the churches together, we give teaching, we give training, we give input, we give the kind of things that we're doing here, we have fellowship with each other, and we send them back out to their fields. But the thing is, what Paul qualified what he did. He says in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, he says, the whole, re the whole region of Asia has been reached by the gospel. In other words, every single town in the region of Asia, Asia around Ephesus had been reached by the gospel. There were churches planted all over the place. And he said, this area is now a reached area. And in the context of a reached area, he pulled the leaders together and he gave them an equip. He did it once. But I think sometimes that's all we do, is go from equip to equip. And equips are good things in reached areas. But if we're going to reach the unreached, we've got to do the other things that Paul did. And he went from synagogue to synagogue, and he went out into the riverbank, and he found where the people were praying, and he went into the marketplace, and he found where people were arguing about existence. And he got into the places where the people were. And equips are wonderful things, but we cannot say that this is an apostolic thing. Apostolic is when we're going out to where the people are, where the unreached are, people who've never had the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus. We have a wonderful teaching movement and a teaching moment in our equips, teaching training, but we can't call that apostolic. Apostolic is when we do what Paul did most of his time. He didn't equip once. So we need to be, think of being master builders. Paul said, I'm a master builder. You go there and you dig foundations there. You lay a couple of bricks there. You've got to get out where the people are. You've got to get out to where the unreached people groups are. Friends, we need to change our thinking on how we're going to do this. What I've tried to do is show you that we have a need. We have a desperate need, and we're not doing very well at it. We have to do better. And I've just opened a couple of doors and a couple of things that we need to think differently about. And if you think about it and in the end you disagree with me, I'm cool with that. I really have no sweat with that. But at least let's talk about it. Let's talk about because we cannot keep doing the same thing in the same way. But here's this cry of my heart, and I believe the cry of God's heart is there are people out there who meet Jesus in a dream and they have no one who can, they can ask Jesus, God spoke to Isaiah. He said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, I'm not worthy. He said, I'm a sinful man living among sinful people. God said, no problem. Let's deal with your sin. Bzzz. And he zapped the sin. And he said, okay, now who will go for me? And Isaiah said, yes, here I am. Send me. And here's the challenge for all of us. Do we carry on doing what we're doing? Or do we change something? Can we start thinking about ways that we can more effectively reach the unreached people groups? And I'm talking to the young guys as well, like Dan and Joel and Peter and, and Eddie and, and, and Matty and, and Ella. You've got your lives ahead of you. Can I say, one of the things I used to do in Mongolia with the Mongolian church, and perhaps you might think this is a little bit abusive, but I used to take teenagers with me on outreach. We used to go all over the country in, Mon in, in Mongolia, and we used to t I used to take, always used to take a young teenage guy, 
And I said, your job is to make sure that my bed is made at night, you, you, that you bring me coffee early in the morning, that when I need my bag, you have my bag there, that you bring my Bible to me when I need my Bible, and when I'm preaching, after I preach, I need a cup of coffee. That's your job. And the guys were saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be, they called, they called themselves bag men. I'm going to be Rob's bag man. And they were so excited. You know what? Because they got to hear all the preachers. They got to be there for all the discussions. They got to see the miracles themselves firsthand. And they started to believe that, yes, they can do it. You know, all of those guys that I took with me as young teenagers, 13, 14, 15-year-old boys, all of them are now in leadership in churches. Because they gave themselves to serving somebody. And I'd say to you young guys, get yourselves by faith. Don't ask your parents. Get yourself by faith 1,500 euros. Get yourself a passport. Then phone up a team guy and say, next time you go to an unreached people group, even if I have to miss two weeks of school, I'm coming with you. Tell your parents... Tell your parents and t talk to your elders about it. Of course, we have to have some wisdom here, yeah? Afterwards. Yeah. But don't ask your parents for the 1,500 euros. You trust God for it for yourself. And if you have to bake cakes and if you have to wash cars to get that 1,500 euros, do it so that you can go to the nations. And watch what God does to your life. Because once you've been infected by this thing, you'll never turn back. Guys, I've gone on for a very long time. I'm exhausted. But I hope this has been a blessing to you. And here's the call of God. Who, who will go for me? Who will go for me? 4,500 unreached people groups. 70 million people a, a year dying without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Can you live with that? And Fred, Fred teases me a little bit because sometimes I express my frustration about living here in Munich with the, the most self-centered, greedy, lazy people on the planet. <laughs> and I'd far rather be out in Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or any other stan. But I'm here to upset you all. God sent me as a gift to you to rattle your cages and to say, guys, we've got to do better at this. And honestly, my heart is I want to see people go. We're privileged today. We've got Benny and Lisa sitting there. They just came in for today. They have a heart for Afghanistan. They had to be evacuated from Afghanistan a couple of months ago. You'd think, okay, living through such terrible circumstances, they wouldn't want to go back. Well, what they want to do is they're trying to find a way to go back, and if they can't go to Afghanistan, they're going to Tajikistan. I have a guidebook, a Lonely Planet guidebook, which... Okay, sorry, we have to... We'll cut that out of the broadcast. I have a guidebook that says... It has all the different countries in Central Asia, and there's a very, very thin section on Tajikistan, and basically says, don't go there. Who wants to go there? These crazy couple. Why? Because there's the Shugni people there who've never ever heard the name of Jesus. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. 